The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse, and for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate. David's blissed out. Come on! There's rebellion in the wind. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur blossoms? I'll have to put those here to test our faith. That damn lie, I, I saw them with my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did in illusions, man. None of it is true. I know insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion! It's it's not what pe- it's not the battle that people think it is at all. It's a completely different thing altogether. You know, it exists yeah. on such a different level. And it's uh, it's weird when you look at um. There's an intersex documentary I saw a while ago, and it's funny because well, not funny. It's tragic, but it's interesting that so many people who don't have hermaphrodite inner you know this is how it started. There were people, and there are people, and it's an increasing number. I think it's five thousand children a day are born intersex with hermaphroditic biology. And because in the in the 60s, I think Dr. Money was in the 60s or 70s, Dr. Money did a um, but there was a botched circumcision of a child. And they said, well, he doesn't have a lot of options, you know, as a boy without a penis, raise him as a girl. And so much of modern transgender ideology has to do with the fact that here's someone who they're they had a, a problem with and they tried to uh, change their gender to fix the problem instead of plastic surgery or something else. And it's, it has nothing to do with the hermaphrodites. Like, so today people think, oh man, the transgender thing is ridiculous. Well, so much of the modern transgender thing has displaced the real issue of Pat, you know, the Saturday Night Live character. There really yeah. are a lot of people like that. And it's, you know, imagine you're told um, uh, 20 or 40 years, 100 years ago, your child is not one or the other. Then you're going to say, oh, they're one or the other. So we're only now finding out it's even more common because it's only now that people will even admit it. Like the doctors wouldn't even put it on the paper originally. So there is a real thing there. There really is intersex and you know hermaphrodites. And there should be more co- awareness and compassion for people that are living outside of the norm but because of the transgender ideology mm-hmm. they're completely swept under the rug you know and yeah. not, uh, <laughs> it, it's well yeah once again it's that um you know trampling what's happening naturally to create like a mockery of it in public maybe mm. something to that degree or i don't know it's, i think it's, it's definitely part of the, the the fact that they are doing that but it's also it disguises and hide so much because so many very important people Akhenaten, uh Akhenaten was p- most likely uh hermaphrodite you know really? or, yeah there's a lot of evidence on the hips and the, the statues there's there become it became a, a trend to make your statues of your leaders hermaphroditic 
which also says, you know, there's this idea of Hermes Trismegistus and mm. we're Hermes Hermetics and this whole thing is connected um, hermaphrodite as well. So there is, there's this idea of the two, the dynamic being the Royal and even on a more weird level, like in the twenties, uh, even in the 19th century, child actors, you know, and there's, there's a um, castrato. So child actors would be turned into um, prepubescent for life. They would not be allowed to uh, converge on puberty. And this, this would make it easier to have someone, a man play a child role or same with playing female roles in, in the Shakespearean courts. So there really was a, a huge amount of it for, and there always has been um, transgendered uh, theater people and transgendered mm. politicians and in the elite, like this has been a commonality for a long time. So it could also yeah. be connected to that. The idea of normalization, you know, it's really, it's, it is a weird realm to think about. I mean, cause you do have the, on one spectrum, no pun intended, you have that, what you were talking about before the hermaphroditic situation that is common. It's historical. It's always been, been here mixed with the opposite side of it, which is just so much uh, parody of, of things. And, and uh, again, just taking what's natural and vulnerable in some situations and using it as a shield for that's what they do. They love doing that. And I say they very, very uh, suspiciously because of course I, I go, you said weird. I mean, on a weirder level, that's where I always am because it's kind of all us. And when you were talking about that situation, it kind of made me think of alchemical, like one extreme and another creating this middle ground of some kind. We're always talking about extremes and then this middle ground. So it's kind of it depends on what level of reality you're you're talking about it right well it's interesting that the alchemical aspect is huge to it you know like they had um resicrucians would switch hands from your right hand to your left hand about 30 years into your life and they think that maybe adolf hitler's uh issues with uh um parkinson's were coming from the fact that he completely switched his brain trying to follow this resicrucian mind switching path and alchemy comes up over and over again in terms of this idea of the human manifestation of the alchemical of having that the, the male and the female soul within you. I mean, there's a lot of weird things there though. A lot of the people that have been into that seem kind of evil, you know, over the, <laughs> over the centuries. But I would say like, even on a completely, cause I'd like to always be conspiratorial, but there's some <laughs> natural organic quality to that. Like, I think you said um, that these things are happening uh, in parody and it's true. Like part of it is parody, but the reason is because it's so much easier to, convince someone to use the same words differently in, in legal circumstances. This is huge. The, you know, rather than make a new law or convince someone of a new idea. So mm. you say intellectual property and online piracy. Well, mm. we're talking about property and piracy, right? Because those are the things that are the most common understood international laws. So we'll create this idea that the, the internet is property, that the virtual is real, you know, virtual estate and real estate that's um that's a parody that's literally what that is but it makes Absolutely. it possible to keep using the law and yeah i totally get what you're saying about you know keep it conspiratorial sometimes because yeah you never want to let your guard down but uh, and i probably get a lot of flack and get turned off by some people that where i i look at both sides of this this uh situation we have this divide and conquer situation that's always existed but then on 
every level of existence, this push and pull is happening and how much of it do maybe our elites quote unquote, or the cabal or whatever know about that process that is just inevitable. And they're just taking advantage of it. And when they show it to us, it's because, yeah, they have no reason not to, because either we're going to see it for ourselves eventually or, or not, but you know what I mean? It's, it's out there regardless of them hiding it because it's part of every level of reality that got real weird. Right. Yeah. I mean, so this, this it's in terms of lies from politicians, you know, so often they lie. We've heard they lie and we know propaganda and mm. these things exist. Misinformation campaigns, of course, but also another level is why they tell the truth. Because you look at, for instance, Biden saying, um, we're going to do all these things. We're super angry. And then the next day, his own press has to say, well, you know, it was a very emotional time and he's not really going to break uh, with treaties and start to commit war crimes. You know, and so mm-hmm. so many times when they say something that is not true and it gets caught up, then you we've done what we've done to every politician. We say, OK, well, we can't trust what they say. And we have to understand that they don't trust the public. So if they're keeping the truth from the public, it's either because they think the public's divided into an oppositional public where there's a, you know, the Russians versus us or mm. someone knowing it is going to hurt us in the long run. But that, you know, break that down further. The idea that knowledge can't be handled by the public, the truth can't be handled by the public, that eventually you'll react, you'll object to the truth unless you're gradually guided towards the situation where you're like, well, I guess, you know, I have to do this. And that's the only thing that there is left to do. By that point, you've lost all your other you know, perception of options. There is a lot of of truth in what they tell us because of that. They know that they can't continually do that and expect us not to completely, I mean, they can create reverse psychology and that's That's, a big control, but there's so many people that are still, you know, you have to imagine how insane it is. 70% or sorry, 70 million or whatever, 50%, 49, 40 to 50% of the country may actually really be going with the program. I mean, Mm. That's it's scary to to even fathom, but it's not just rigged elections. It's not just corruption. There are a lot of idiots. There really are you know people that are and also idiot in the idioti uh, Athenian sense. Like they are absolved from politics and they are just controlled cogs in the mm. machine. This is so much of why they tell us the truth. And, and so the truth is always minimal. You don't get the whole truth, right? But, those, but this is why I mean, recently Klaus Schwab was talking about resets and getting into Tarin and Tartaria. And then I had an interview recently with Alexander Dugan yes. and found out that they're talking about Tartaria. And it was like, okay, so they're not, nobody's hiding this anymore. Five years ago, it might've even been, you know, completely laughed at to mention this. And now it's just completely accepted at the World Economic Forum. Davos is talking about a renaissance of Tartary. Like, what is this, right? Yeah, than- yeah. I also heard Putin and maybe this was just, maybe this is bad news, but I don't know uh, about a year ago, maybe less. I heard something about Putin talking about opening up some kind of library or presentation of some kind in honor of the lost Russians, true history, giving yeah, that, it back to the people of some kind there, there there's been for years. So, I mean, I think it's 2008 when he stopped being president for about four years and Medvedev was president. Um, there's a point in there where he's prime minister and so this is maybe 2011 that they have a video of him uh, being presented the maps of Tartary and saying, wow, we need to really start looking into this as time's gone on. 
Tartary has become ubiquitous with Eurasia. As Dugan has mentioned, this is you know, but the thing that's the distinction is Russia considers itself the inheritor of Tartaria, not the original founders of Tartaria. They're the continue, they're the new foundlings. Right. You know? There was a golden horde, there's a war, there's a bunch of people that have been pushed out. There's Eurasia had Taran. Taran, and you can see where the Tar, we talked about this in the last show, mm-hmm. you know, Tarkan. Tarmax, there's a lot of things that use that route. Um, and, and we at some point started calling Tartars Tatars because, or Tatas in, in Persia, because mm. they didn't pronounce the R's. And there's also the, the difference between the D and the T. So Dada is actually another word for Tartar that we're finding in the Persian areas. But as time went on, Europeans in the West, after the Mongolian packs, they start to refer to Tartaria as. Tartar, Tartaria because of the Tartarus. They think it's, it's very similar to this idea of death and hell. But then even that is presupposition on the Greeks taking Tartarian myths and saying, okay, well, these people who lived underground, they're actually evil. And it folds into Christianity. Then Tatar and, and is a kind of hybridization of the idea that there's a more Asian Tatar. There's a more Asian Eurasia. Then there's a more, and then there's a more uh, East, there's a more Eastern European um, Scandinavian or Rus Eurasia. And so the, as, as time goes on, you see that in the 1800s, Tartarianism was just called Turanism. You know, Toran was the Turkish and they call it pseudo-Turkology. The mm. idea that Jesus Christ was a Turk. And everything. But if you get into this idea of what is a Turk and what is Istanbul and Constantinople and these connections, you, you actually find the, 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 the term Turk is a little bit more general and actually has to do with this Ugaric language in its very usual language, not Sanskrit based. It has a completely different um, set of, of linguistic rules. So it's, it's plausible in a lot of ways that the Turks were in charge for a time of this, but it's a milieu. It's a matrix of different communities that have all lived in this area. They've all interacted with each other and they represent the land power. And so there's the Scythian versus the Tartarian. Mm. We've talked about this before, but really what it comes down to is this idea that there's the land empire, which is by tradition more traditional because it's working the land the way that they've learned how, and right. then the sea empire, which is by uh, by by nature just more innovative because it has to overcome nature with technology and it's constantly overcoming seasons and everything. So there really is a dynamic between traditionalism and modernism yes. even though that it's not the same as the, the, the dynamic between futurism because right. futurism i love your, tw- your tongue twister fucking twit uh tweet that you put out the other day where you were like yeah could you say something like that like what was it you were like comparing all the isms and Man. it was great uh, i want to get that re- <laughs> i want to get it i kind of want to get it right if i do because it was clear. great it was pretty good because uh, it was like transhumanism is not post-humanism and um we post-humanism have to- is not <laughs> yeah well, so right. I'll, I'll try to I'll try to like explain it. Let me see if I can find it. So I think it actually was worth. It was. I, I I think it covered a lot in a cute little poem. <laughs> Aw, it's sweet. Yeah, yeah I, I did it in Russian on VK because I figured that in, in Russia, they don't actually talk about Will Smith or the Oscars at all. That's great. Which is pretty sweet. So I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> Um, let's see. Tra- traditionalism is different than nostalgism, and I'll, I'll I'll say the whole thing, and I'll explain what I mean. Traditionalism is different than nostalgism. Modernism opposes futurism. Futurism is not transhumanism. 
Transhumanism must be distinguished from posthumanism. Traditionalism and futurism both reject modernism. Modernism embraces contemporaneous customs countercultures reject. So in a way, modernism is at odds with traditionalism and futurism because both of them are countercultures. And they're both saying we need to uh, we need to change everything about the modernity. So there's a lot more of a united a unity between um, the past and the future than there is, for instance, between the, the left and the right. In yeah. Modernity. And the, and the, like the, the, the modernity is the thing that's fighting to keep itself in checks or in power. So you have um, people might think that there's this great huge war going on between, you know, Ukraine and, but really it's a, it's just a war between the land and the sea power and trying to maintain unipolarity because they're so desperate to stay in charge and they know that they're losing everything, that they're willing to work with their enemies just to pr- proliferate the system, mm. you know, and also transhumanism is a different thing because so many people hate transhumanism, but really it's just this idea of, of Alzheimer's being replaced, but posthumanism very quickly, once you start saying, we're going to just extend the human condition as far as it can go and remain human, right? Like by making sure kids who have missing limbs, you give them new limbs or something like right. that. That's a trans transhumanist idea. Yeah, but let it be s- a stepping stone to our future, not but the if, future. Yeah, if you become non-human, as soon as you step out of the, in any way, when you're like, I can't make choices the same way, I can't think the same way, certain amounts of neural link will do this, where oh, you're yeah. no longer the same kind of human. That becomes post-humanism, and that's at odds with transhumanism as well. So, <laughs> and man, that's crazy. And you know, I'm glad that uh, you you brought up to not bring up the Will Smith thing. I, I I was very tempted to make a meme that was like every other theory on Chris Rock's face, and then put root language <laughs> on on the slap because <laughs> I've been uh, I've been obviously dug into uh, a lot of language stuff and uh i know that you dig on that stuff too and tying it into where these hidden cultures come from perhaps like i always kind of have seen it as this these two groups of some kind that i'm always trying to pinpoint like who started this divide and conquer or maybe it's one group and they can't figure it out but it's it's more complex than that. It seems, or I don't know, maybe it's this original. It's always one, then it breaks to two. And then from there it's chaos. Cause it'll continue to divide and divide into different ideologies. I don't know. Where do you fall with that? With the, you know, all the interesting mythologies coming out of that part of the world. Well, there's definitely um, nationalism becomes a major player in mm. any story. So I think we talked last time a bit about Beowulf and the connections between Scandinavian mythology which are very much their own, but yeah. also they are, they're inspired in a lot of ways by Hellenistic. Yeah. It's pretty clear that they're inspired by Hellenistic concepts. I mean, the, the lightning throwing God and this and that there are, there are, there are seriously close connections. Not everybody in, in barbaric uh, Scandinavia went to Rome, but clearly there were intellectuals that interacted and you see the same thing with Roman mysticism and Roman, the Aeneid, um, the Aeneid coming from, uh, Homer's Odyssey. They're very, they're very connected concepts. So what will happen often is somebody will say, we are now in charge of this empire, which is, you know, what is an empire? It's a, it's a garden. Mm. You have gardeners that are growing food, you have growing people, growing doctors, and then it's continually running. So it's a farm, right? But if you don't keep watering it, uh, it'll die. 
And if somebody else comes along when you die and take it over, it becomes theirs. So there really is a connection between the, the, the actual empire itself. It's the, it's the house with many masters. The masters are revolving, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout the, the generations and they will come in and say, well, we need to make these stories about us. So a lot of the time the stories will change. You'll, you'll still keep some of the story, but the character will become more like the, the new people in charge. Mm-hmm. And also there's, you know, hi- history perspective changes as well. So maybe right now we're looking at Tartaria through the lens of our current civilization. Mm. But if we were to look at it, the same information 500 years ago, you know, we thought of it as Earth, you know, 300 years ago, we thought of Tartaria as magic. Now we see it as science. Who knows what we'll see it like in 300 years. So we constantly have to revisit history. I, I do think though, the idea of the land and sea power are very dynamic. Mm. I mean, the idea, the difference between being traditionalist and being modernist or futurist is huge. If you're, if you think of, you know, Carthage in Rome, um, the first war crimes were, ele- I mean, that we know of were elephants. Like the first we- we- weapons of mass destruction were elephants of mass destruction, right? <laughs> and they would bring them in and they would, they would smash people's heads and they would stampede there was a couple times though where they made a bunch of noise or something and the elephants went backwards. They're like, ah, and they killed their own armies. <laughs> and so everyone's like, all right, that's it. No more elephants. This is just brutal. This is cart carnage and Carthage. Right. But, but you know, a couple centuries later, after um invading in the north, uh, Hannibal invaded in the north uh in Italy, they they started the Romans started using elephants. They they made everyone sign these war treaties against elephants, and then they started using them themselves when it became more natural, when it had been tried. And we see this with China and everyone's always like, wow, China doesn't experiment enough, you know? Well, maybe that's because they're not really the sea power, you know? And what is America and England? It's just, we have this island thing that's not very much uh, in resources or land. Now there's a respect to England and the UK for what they do have, but they have to control so much other of the, of the world to maintain the hegemony, to maintain themselves as their power, having a great British pound sterling that's better than mm-hmm. you know the other economies. It requires exploitation of the rest of the world, colonization. This requires the seafaring power. So the seafaring power is, I think, a very different thing than the, the land-bearing power. But at the same time, the land and sea powers are doing the same thing. You, the Romans were in 60 AD in Britain. 1066, you have the bottom of manumissions. You go back a thousand years earlier, they're still slaves to this day to be a king and queen of England. It seems like the rule is you have to prove your lineage comes from outside of England. Right. You know what I mean? Cause like yeah. if you were, a, if you were a native Pocahontas kind of Aboriginal, but of England, like if you, I think they're the, 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 what do they call them? There's the, the name for that. I don't uh, know. The, 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 gypsy, know. the gypsies in, in England have another name. Um, gypsies, travelers, uh, what they're called you'll say it you'll say and i'll know it too but i don't know oh man (laughs) it's not the no the friends or something like that oh i don't know that (laughs) the travelers there's so many names interlopers i don't know fellows oh man oh the thing is what there's people mix up the romani and that's what i was thinking (laughs) in england in england they think that all the gypsies are romani but there's actually another group that are the travelers and I, I forget there's another name for them as well but they are as far as we can tell the most aboriginal english people you know they're they're people that have been there the longest and it, it stands up to 
the hierarchy rules of Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and also how uh, Colombian and pre-Columbian civilization has worked in caste systems in uh, India, which also have made their way through the Moors and the Arabs into Spain and Portugal, which is where we get our word for classism is from the caste system. Right. Yeah. So, so they're really, so caste systems are essential, but what we, or to this, this whole myth of, you know, hierarchy, but we have these people who they were first there and then they get exploited. So l- looking at other examples, because England's history has been so erased, we look at South America and you see that the mestizos um and the mulattoes and then the castillos and then the europeans so the europeans are the furthest removed they're at the very top of the pyramid and then they have a group of partially um european people that have also been mixed with people from another place that have been already conquered so they have the mulattoes and then the mulattoes are above the mestizos and so as you get further down the, lo- the lower you go, the more native and more Aboriginal your people are. So the people that are there, they have to have all of their rights removed. But if you're from there and you get sent to go conquer for your leading country, some other people, you will have slightly more rights as a mercenary in a new culture. And so this continually happens where the mercenaries are, they think they have the highest privilege, right? And so this is where people get so upset at European Americans, like, well, you had the highest privilege well not really because clearly they're still working you know if you look Mm -hmm. above that there's a group of people that are above that and they're not interested in in being american or being english at all in fact it looks like you have to prove that you come from muhammad or from solomon or you know some somewhere else you know clearly Mm -hmm. in order to run any one of these countries not just england germany's royal houses you know nobody's from their own place so it's not just that you have to be from another play that you have to be from the specific family. It's, it's also that the country cannot be ruled by a, a, someone who's actually invested in its future. That's where, scary. yeah, that really is very interesting and telling where's Zelensky from. Is he from Ukraine? Is he so born and raised there? So Zelensky is from, so in Ukraine is such a weird idea because mm-hmm. it's this idea of like, <laughs> It's a it is a conglomerate area. Yeah, it, it is a country like Iraq's a country, and like, but you know, for a thousand years, you've got there was the the Russian areas, there's the Polish areas. He's from the Russian areas, but he's also he's Jewish. So the the background on where his family came before they got to the east of Ukraine, I'm not completely sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know he speaks Russian, and his television show was in Russian, and they're trying. Uh, ideologically to make Ukrainians more Ukrainian by speaking Ukrainian, but Ukrainian and Russian, you know, they're pretty similar. There's a difference there. A lot of the time, the snobs of Russians think that Ukrainian is just um, slurring. Ukrainian is slurring Russian because it move, it removes some of the vowels and the sounds, right? Kiev becomes Kiev and things mm. like that. So it's not impressing um the 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 russian ukrainians who are still nationalistically some of them are still nationalistically ukrainian a lot of people don't want to be part of putin's russian federation and right. can still be russian so that's the other thing not everyone in the russian parts of ukraine are are pro um you know russia but at the same time a lot of ukrainians you know they probably they might not tell you at this point because of nationalism because they get arrested for it but they might not be super enthusiastic about the government of Zelensky either. I mean, it no, is a weird, not. I mean, it's a weird thing to happen. Imagine you're Ukrainian and there's a TV show about 
this guy who is a teacher, you know, he's a high school teacher who talked to me like I'm five, you know, and he, yeah. he yells and it starts out like, I don't know if you've seen the show, but it's just a thing. preview. The whole, the whole, the whole first season's on Netflix. The second season I found on YouTube, uh, you have to type it in Ukrainian or Russian, mm. but you can find it. Um, and if you go on my, if you go on exertus.com and you go to my chat groups, I have links to all those if anyone's Sweet. trying to watch the English translations of these shows. And I'll, I'll do a better deep dive at some point where I actually record some of the scenes and, and string them together. But essentially, yeah, that'd be have, sick because I, I want to know about like I, I definitely want to dive into it for sure. So let's yeah, go it's ahead. Uh, it's a weird thing to like read TV. I get it. It's like either read yeah. a book or don't you. But I mean, if you really want to study mind control and monarch programming and Mockingbird style Tavistock MK Ultra mm. um, propaganda, and you want and you wonder why American television is so just bad and why they ha- they don't have anybody. But Wanda Sykes to do your, you know, talk, because all their best people are over there working in other countries on on propaganda for the the other countries are taking over. This show is amazing. The show has curb your enthusiasm, West Wing, Spin City, that's my bush, all ro- rolled into with Roseanne. There's a lighting at the beginning with the family and the and they're literally wearing the same outfits. You're like, this is Roseanne, and he lives with his mother, and they're all living in this apartment. But the YouTube. Somebody catches him on video yelling about all the problems in Ukraine one day. And <laughs> like he, Jeff Daniels. <laughs> and then he wins the popular vote, which I think there's a Chris Rock movie, right? Isn't there a Chris yes. Rock movie where he literally does that? Something like that. Same, yeah. Exact same thing. Yeah. And so, it, but it's exactly the same story. Um, he's driving buses. He's not getting, you know, and he gets rid of his limos and his bodyguards. Doesn't need him, he says. And, you know, the whole, the whole thing is just so absurd. But He'll continually say, okay, why did this not work? I'm going to try to fix it. Why did the last eight governments not make it happen? And he'll break down, well, this guy stole the money, doubled the money. This guy stole the money, doubled the money all the way down. And they never paid the union of uh, workers. So they're selling the metal scrap pile so they can feed their kids. And they said they would love to finish it in a month and stop doing that as soon as someone pays them because they haven't been paid in six months. And this is the continual story of the haphazard you know, issues and everyone's got these corruption and bureaucrats. Or every- so he comes through, he cleans it all up gradually, except there's still this prime minister behind the president who's not trustworthy. And at the end of the show, he you know catches him in mm-hmm. the act. And, and you know, but that's just, as time goes on, more and more problems happen. The, the second season, he has a time when uh, the European Union accepts the Ukraine and he wakes up the next morning and everyone's gone. And it's this, <laughs> and the whole place is just empty. And he rides a bike around and his beard grows like castaway and he has a coconut like Jesus Wilson. Christ. And he's just in Ukraine by himself. And then Angela Merkel calls him and he's ducks in the White House and he's just like, get out of the way, get away. He's like, answers her and he's like, you've done an amazing job with Ukraine. Crime is lower than any other country in Europe. There's no, you know, population problems. Uh, you might need to work on your population growth a bit by bringing in some refugees or immigrants. But other than that, it was just like, so they say oh, a lot. My goodness. <laughs> they say a lot in the show. But those are just like the fun ones that are trying to show you because the first episodes are we're going to clean up the country and how it's going to happen, which right. literally led to a party being named after the TV show party and him being put in charge of the country 
as the president, the actor who played the character. So it's the levels. I mean, it, I guess I've said it, but it's just, it just doesn't, it's still hard to process that this is really real, that you could literally do this. That people said, yeah, I want, I want to have that sitcom be real. I'm voting. Oh, dude, remember how, how many, uh, how many memes did you see John Stewart for president? Like back in the day, you know, it's, you rally he, around icons. He might've been able, if he hadn't been so, I mean, you know, God forbid me like giving people credit, but if he had, if he had sold out just a little bit more, he would have been president. I think right. <laughs> I mean, probably like, if he had just not talked about Ron Paul, you know, at all, <laughs> then he probably, yeah. he could have been, but he could have. Yeah. You never know. That's fucked up, man. Yeah. I, I wonder like, it's propaganda on one level. It's con- it's mind control on on one level, and then again, like these deeper level, or maybe kind of taking a bigger step back and looking at it, it's just it feels like reality is constantly mimicking itself into existence. And totally, it's. Do you think that? You know, Zelensky doing pulling, you know, having this shit happen. Is this just the height of arrogance of what they can get away with? Or do you think it's more than that? I mean, I don't think it's I, th- I think it's maybe it's arrogant, but really, I think it's kind of I, I hate to say it's kind of brilliant because you've got these people. Well, fair, that are- fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, it does this like. It's necessary at this point because we've moved into postmodernism and, mm. and that's and that's a good thing in some ways. The objective truth didn't exist when Socrates was voted to be poisoned by a democracy. You know, objective truth never really exists. And the knowable truth is not the eternal truth. Uh, Someone said it better recently that if you're talking about the Tao, you don't know the Tao or something like that. That's perfect. Cause they also say, you know, when you think, you know, quantum physics, you actually have no idea. It's very (laughs) similar in that regard. You know, you're messing with, this thing that kind of can't be named. It can kind of only be like slightly taken in. But you can, you can use, you can manifest your reality. Around way, it, yes. Way, way more powerful than uh, truth itself often. I mean, it depends. Truth can, in certain circumstances, um, destroy a facade. But mm. I don't know. I'd like to do some math on that. Because I yeah, kind of <laughs> feel like it's more that the revealing of the mistruth or the absence of function of the mistruth is the issue. Not that truth itself is helping. And I, this is right. sad because I want it to be, but I don't think I see evidence of truth existing objectively. So it's more that you say, Hey, this thing you've been relying on can't rely on it anymore. It yeah, was man, just sort I of totally, totally agree. There's no, it's, it's uh, I often use Russian dolls in, in symbolism and metaphors because that's how I feel reality kind of is mm-hmm. built in that fractal form, but also it's, it's that it's also the onion because you're literally digging through and suddenly you're on the other side and you're like, what the fuck? Where was the thing? There was no thing. There's never a thing. You know Mr. I mean? You're Mr. Magoo. So <laughs> as long as you can't see where you're going, you're fine. You know, but as soon as you start to rely on something, that step gets a little bit more creaky until it snaps. Mm. And, and so in, in, in regards to the show though, like the idea is <laughs> sure. to, to create, to create a, a, a truth or a reliable uh, presupposition for people to exist upon. So the Dyson, so the spirit, so this idea that, okay, what is Ukraine? Well, Ukraine's kind of like an old America. We're watching syndicated American TV. We're going to start the show with Roseanne lighting and Roseanne set. 
because we feel like an old America. And then we're going to move into other shows that we've seen, and we're going to show you how that works. And if you parallel it back to how Spin City and West Wing were used in the United States to convince people, I mean, part of the deal is getting the opposite audience that, of people that you would want to hang out with. If you're a television producer, you're probably trying to hit the other group of people because you could just talk to your friends. So the more powerful thing is to make it as a liberal to make a conservative show so that mm. conservatives will believe in the show. And then you can every once in a while put in this thing about uh, you know, the, the world looks a certain way to Americans. Look at the Chinese map instead of the American map. Look at the actual size of continents. You know, these are things that the Republicans wouldn't have been. And the particularly American Midwest conservatives who had been ascribed to Republicans, even though Republicans and Democrats switch hats every oh, you know, yeah. few generations. So you start to see like there's this plan to control the opposition through media. And Ukraine has done this spectacularly. You have this Spin City president who's coming out like Michael J. Fox and he's running around saying, you know, that he's going to make the country great again. By the way, this is all happening before the show came up before Trump was president. So another interesting thing is so much of of the, the narrative is if it's it's so close to what people thought Trump was doing. This idea that he's helping and getting rid of uh, trafficking, laundering, right. et cetera, et cetera. Only, and even that the media is against it because the right. media is tied in with the the corruption and everything else. So there's a lot of parallels between what happened in, in America in 2016 and this show that, that eventually got him elected, I think in 2019. Mm-hmm. But you also hear every once in a while these uh, predictive lines like, Everybody quiet down, quiet down. Listen, listen. And they're not listening. He says, Putin's been disposed, you know, and then he's like, that works every time. I'm sorry. I have to. That's the only way to get your attention. And he'll do that like throughout the show. They continually bring up this idea. And then there's an uh, there's an episode of the I think the first episode of the second season is that he's being attacked and going through like a Hunger Games like scenario. The revolution's coming. Airstrikes are coming. Ukraine's going to be invaded. And then it turns out it's just a hazing, a ritual hazing for his mm. birthday. So there, there's just there's a lot of weird things in the show that mm. that reveal a lot about what's going on with the Ukraine conflict. And I need to I need to probably at some point get a better translation for the last few episodes of the second season. But you can see like the plan was to show that Ukraine's going to clean up, Ukraine's going to remove all of these people in power, that this is going to be a a, a way for for the Ukraine to become stable without joining the EU, the dangers of joining the EU are we'll lose our people and we'll have to bring in people that aren't Ukrainian and that they're up. There's this huge nationalism. The Tomga symbol is in every scene when they're kissing, you know, he's put his hand up on the shield of the Ukrainian Tomga. It's the most nationalistic show I've seen since the thirties in Germany. That is nuts. And I did, I, I was thinking that it was kind of uh, nurtured by American bureaucrats this whole time already anyway. So it's like they're recreating it over there and they do that often in history. That's kind of their nom de plan. That's kind of what they do. They just go around and recreate what they've already done in other places. Right. And 
you know, how different is that from when we were finding pyramidal structures in the past in multiple different locations? And now it's seemingly getting more and more clear what these things were used for on some sort of electrical level or, you know, on a very personal level for everyone involved in the area and shit like that. Who knows? I, I don't there's know. E- there's do even think? there's even pyramids in Ukraine. Um, I forget the, com- yeah. the complex in um, where is this one at? I'm trying to find the name of it. It's so hard. It's like it's in Lugansk. Yeah, in Lugansk, if you look for the Lugansk Ukrainian pyramids, you'll see okay. that there's there's mountainous pyramids. And Interesting. it's also areas where I mean, so okay. I think we maybe went went into this last time. Everywhere we found star forts for Tartaria, we're, we're very close to volcanoes so far. Mm-hmm. Now, now that's not that huge of a discovery, mind you, because there are volcanoes everywhere. Right. But it, it is weird that where there also are star forts everywhere. And when they're nearby these areas the mineral content goes up amazing how if you're a star fort you'll be near a place where there's a volcano um uranium sometimes and silver or gold or whatever i mean so that's a i'm scared even to mention that so because people could use that to find out other interesting things it's true like (laughs) ukraine yeah but Ukraine's got Ukraine's got the Ukraine's got the radiation, you know, but it's got mm. the it, and not in the in the petroleum propaganda sense, but it has the minerals and resources and materials that five times any other country in the 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 region nearby. So they have a crazy amount of the, I think five percent of the world's uh, uranium, or maybe it's oil reserves or whatever. They have so much of so many things, and you mm. go to other places, it's, it's not as big of a, it's a problem. So. It makes sense that this would be the cradle of civilization because if there is a reset and it's coming out of, you know, but it's not to say that Ukraine is the only one. It just seems like Ukraine might've been one that didn't break down mm-hmm. the longest because you look at Krakatoa, you look at Campy Fergie, they all broke down. Ukraine didn't break down for a very long time. And it was the cent- the epicenter for Chernobyl, which was this sort of future city. Russia wanted to have us, everyone in the world was going to have a zeitgeist Venus project like paradise mm. based, based on Chernobyl. Chernobyl, it, I mean, and this is kind of in a weird way proves it to me. You find out that Sahara meant before it meant desert, like lush rainforest or something to that effect. You know, but now we think Sahara means desert. Right. You, find out, you find out that Chernobyl used to mean the exact opposite of now you think it means radioactive dystopia. That's the perfect brand rebranding of paradise. They've taken the, the 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 original word Chernobyl and everything had to refer to you know um, where like the angels met the seraphim. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a divine place. Like there's a there's a lot. It's a very beautiful thing. But right. now and this is the same with Tartaria, Tarnation. Like they just completely flip a word on its head. And to flip it on its head, you know that's different than even the Russians took the McDonald's and made Gigi which is the they put the McDonald's oh, right. on its side, <laughs> but it's not upside down like a tarot right. card, and that know? that's almost more important. That's like a very symbolic thing that it's not, rather than almost what it means the way it is. The way it's not is important there, you know. That inversion's always there, and you you brought me to where I love going, which is the biggest one in my opinion. It's hell, H E L. And Udenma, that whole thing from the box saga and this whole cradle of civilization in paradise at the the North Pole, possibly. What's your perspective on that? Because I know it's not just the box saga. It's not just Finnish mythology talking about that. We have other ideas coming to us about this magnetic mountain in the north and everything. Where does where do these 
roots or possible roots fit in? So in terms of the box saga, like I think we were talking last time about how important it's so important. Like the box yeah, saga, we really, said that we didn't yeah. say really why. So yeah. let's <laughs> we could. I mean, we we kind of yeah. The, 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 yeah, you're fair. You're fair. All right. The idea that language <laughs> roots and symbolism of sounds like why is cough like why is cough such a strong sound? What's the deal mm. with that? And as time goes on, why do certain sounds get flipped on their heads? Why is it that tartar became? Tata, or why maybe was it Dada originally? Mm. Why is Berber and Barbar like the sound shapes actually affect our complete understanding of of everything on every level? But it's not just um, the, the the single pole. Like this idea of the multipolarity is important. Like the, there are a number of poles according to the ancient myths, and Tahuli in the north and like the Hyperborean north. There's a lot of stories that connect the Santa Claus and the Krampus and the underground beings that were uh, Hellenistic, you know, and mm-hmm. these are there's, they're, they're not good. They're not bad. They're right. tricks. They're tricksters. And if right. they're upset, they might destroy you because they're more powerful than you. It's right. a very different. Sounds like is, any human that feels more powerful than any other human. Yeah, that's true. But also, I mean, uh, it's a God mass. It's like that. Yeah, I guess so. It's a very anthropic way of looking at things is that humans can be dangerous and therefore gods could be like humans. Bali have their religious, they have clowns that come out and they try to make the gods laugh because they figure that way they won't. If the gods get too upset, they might destroy humans for their own amusement. But if, mm. if we keep making them laugh, maybe then that'll be fine. And it's interesting because that's a very similar idea to Loki and Seth and these connections uh, that Seth was a foreign god, that Loki was considered to be a foreign god. Uh, this there are there are serious connections between the the polar Hyperborean Scandinavian beliefs and the Balinese beliefs. And there's another possibly why Frisians from Holland ended up there because they were probably already there before the reset, and going mm-hmm. back and forth. But the other thing is we were talking about Hellenism and Hellenic Hellenism, yeah, yeah. So the, so so people thought. You know what? That that Greek stuff, that's bad. You know, getting close to God, you think God's the sun? No, that's the devil. Get away from that. You know, or mm. that you know what? Underground is uh that's that's bad because it was good. And th- th- it stands to logic so much of if this is considered to be the absolute evil that at one point it was flipped on its head you know, right. because of somebody else. <laughs> and no one's flipping it on its side and saying, "Well, what is this really about?" But there's this idea of like Heliorcus and Heliorca and these sun orchestrated cities cities that were run by the sun or Mm. solar powered autonomous cities that have wind and water power as well that are connected to these star forts oh wow yeah and we 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 translated later to say wow how magical because during the pax mongola and the periods when there's uh, a disconnection because the volcanoes have erupted some some sort of destruction has happened people don't know what this technology is so they're just saying to themselves oh wow you know this was magical but there it is there's the there's the evidence all along the way that in, in hellenism as well you see like the the alexandrian um steam engines and the solar photovoltaic photovoltaic chemicals and all of these groups that are trying to figure out ways of doing the shroud uh, the, uh of turin yeah yeah you know using different chemicals to do photo light exposure and everything there's so many groups that are trying to figure this out up until Vermeer does his lens painting and then all of a sudden the chemistry starts to become understood again so we kind of have records of everyone going their separate ways and fighting with each other and 
never figuring out what they're looking at. You know, you have a group that says, Hey, this is all the most important stuff we understand. Mm. And, but it'd be kind of like if there was a desert Island or there was a plane crash or something like that in four different islands from one company, like it was the Apple or something crashed into four different places. And the teams that worked on making the software were on one Island and the teams that built the hardware were on another Island. So they don't understand everything, but it's so important and they know it that they generally generationally save that wisdom as almost religion. And then eventually someone built a bridge and then they're like, wait, your culture, our culture, they just work so well together. And mm. that's when you start to see it's because they come from the same thing, but they were specialists. It's interesting too, because it almost reminds me of the Tower of, of Babel in that way, how it's just this unified thing that gets broken apart and it can come back together, perhaps. Uh, maybe maybe that's uh, why our language has been so deeply like, it feels like a trick almost when you start getting into all the word magic, which comes from puns, which is, you know, I guess kind of taken in as like the lowest form of humor. Isn't that interesting? It's demonized, yet it's like the phonetics of it all is what can root it all back together. I also felt strange when I did my interview with Dugan because he's Russian and he speaks like six languages <laughs> more. Um, the words he's using and how he describes them. I understand them because I took classes on those words. So when he says uh, political theory or capitalism or usury or um, license, you know, like in the Black's Law Dictionary, License is the ability or the permission to do what you would otherwise not be allowed to do. These have definitions and it's like hocus pocus and Harry Potter. But then the comment section, there were some people that were very upset because they go back into, well, I think that the word means and my common usage uh, matters, right? And no, like common usage matters only to um, the degree that you're speaking amongst the common masses. But if you're talking about actual definitions of words, etymological definitions and accepted definitions are where we're at. There's the, there's the academic accepted definition. And then there's the etymological definition and the common mm. usage is almost always uh, wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Do you think we're heading back towards a place where, I mean, cause it seems like in every aspect, at least from our limited bias perspective in this community of open-minded thinkers, we are, just uncovering everything from the past. So do you think we're possibly maybe getting back to a more uh, pure language at some point, or do you think, do you think new speak and that's, you know, everything that's happening to our language is to um, stop that from inevitably happening perhaps. I think that there's a dynamic here between, you know, this idea of traditionalism and futurism come into language mm -hmm. again, if everyone has universal language, then, on one hand, they will be understood, but on the other hand, they'll have nothing new to talk about. So the difference of miscommunication is very important and the difference of perspective is essential. So we need people to see things different ways, mm. to have different feelings about the outcomes of a story. You know, someone should believe the exact op or feel the exact opposite about um, Beauty and the Beast that, as you do. You know, everything should be flipped. They should be on the, the side of the noble uh, royal who's, uh, you know, a, a primal beast. And except, you know, we need to have people that exist in, in that sense. But we also need language to evolve. So when people talk about their problems with neural links, 
my problem with Neuralink is mainly the idea that it might end language. We're getting to a point where you'll be able to send an experience of sensory experience to someone else. You'll lose the meta tags. They won't have reference. And so language is important so that we're able to uh, describe an experience without having to share the experience, learning the easy way instead of learning the hard way. You don't have to believe the lesson. You can choose whether you live by that lesson in your life's dharma or not. But otherwise, we become fully homogenized. And I think that's the biggest scare right now is if we lose the, the capacity to. Um, now, here's, a, here's an optimist uh, other side. The paradox, the optimist paradox is that more neural link experiences might mean more understanding of experience, which could lead to if it's left in check and not post-humanist, might allow people to create more meta tags of experiences, creating more words and better understanding of words. So that would be cool, but you know, you have to be careful that don't always expect the best. Well, of course, it always goes back to intent and who's behind this tech and who's running it. I mean, because it's not technology that's the bad guy. You know, that's the funny thing about Terminator, you know, my favorite action movie from the 90s, and it makes so much sense now hoping I'm kind of raising a little John Connor right now, but like not to the extent where he wouldn't pick up the damn machine and use it for his own goodwill. Like I always say that technology has always and should always the word itself, etymological definition and probably the academic definition both together can be used as a tool to help us get where we're going always but and and it will change the shape of it will change the look of it will change but technology is not where the enemy is it's who it's it's always about intent right um those elephants those elephants so (laughs) (laughs) but they were provoked right to to act that way but there is chaos you know there's always chaos like something could happen they were startled by noise and the noise startled them so yeah (laughs) you gotta gotta be careful with the idea the road to hell is paved with good intentions of course and so it's not always it's not always about intentions it's sometimes about um feedback loops of consequence and i think that's (laughs) <laughs> so it's a little bit of both right i mean and that's kind yeah. of where where we've been where our heads at have been in this conversation where it's like there are these polarizing forces in in this experience we're having on a political every level we could talk about and it's not one or the other and it's not neither it's both yeah. it's it's both of these forces working in balance and i hate i'm not hate but like it's it's very upsetting that it seems like these universal concepts are so embedded in like a fearful negative way sometimes uh, in supposedly more open-minded communities. And, you know, like I don't like that the concept of uh, certain symbols get uh, wrapped in and the baby thrown out with the bathwater a lot of times. And maybe we're moving past that. Maybe I'm a broken record at this point. Maybe no, I, I agree. Are... I think that there are, well, there are people that agree with us, but it's, it is still startling that we're looked at as, a, you know, as the counterculture and not accepted that the counterculture is usually the thing that usurps the dying culture. I mean, of oh, course, Rome, you know, Christianity, Constantinianism, like all these ideas, they were rejected and then they were embraced and assimilated and became ubiquitous. Um, so clearly the, the counterculture has to rise, but there is that struggle. And I think eventually we'll come up with the most poetic way of saying that there's a struggle between modernity uh, on both ends between 
futurism and traditionalism. And that that is that is actually the war right there is on, on every respect is that the, the traditionalists and the futurists need to work together because otherwise one, the other two will destroy the other. So if, if the, if modernity works with traditionalism, it will destroy futurism. If modernity I, works with futurism, it will destroy tradition. It's interesting how you put that. It's not the same frame at all, but just, it sounded like the rich working with the poor won't destroy the middle class. <laughs> well, know, Hey, Hey, you know, <laughs> That's Russian a doll, my friend. That's a theory I'd like to explore <laughs> as well. I think, you know, the bell economy was, you know, the, the creation of the rich working with the middle class. So, or the poor, rather, the rich, the middle, the bell economy, the middle class was created on the poor working with the rich. Um, yeah. What do you know about the bell? I don't, I only got turned on to that very recently. Just the concept of it came across my plate by looking something else up. Could you talk economy, a little the, bit about that? Yeah. Okay. The bell economy is um, the idea that it, you need to have a certain amount of wealth in the middle class. You have the, the rich have to pay in financial capitalism and usury just enough that the middle class can continue to buy. And there, there's a large enough middle class that they, the middle class is large enough to continue to buy the things that the poor are being paid enough to become the middle class in order to sell. So there's a relationship between the poor and the rich. And what develops is this bell in between and it mm. expands. And so the, the expansion is more wealth to the poor and less wealth to the extreme rich, but only so much less and only so much more until there's a sweet spot. And the sweet spot was as far as people described in the 40s to the 70s and you know the 19th century it was theorized as a thing but i'm going to explain why i don't really believe in the full you know explanation for this sure the the the, the bell economy was credited as being a capitalist or financial capitalist uh marvel uh, but really it's an economic miracle of managerial theory that arrived because the rich knew that the other option was complete collapse of industry What's happening now with the collapse of the bell economy, the collapse of the middle class is there's less people to buy these goods. Therefore, there's less multimillionaire, um, there's, there's less mass sales of objects. So the billionaires start to be less and less billionaires and the poor end up getting paid less because there's less demand for the poor to work to, uh, to make these products to compete with each other. You know, because really what ends up happening is everyone's making a car, car prices go down prices for work goes up because they want you to work for them. And then more and more cars get made so they can sell as many cars as possible. And then the middle class are created from, you know, so this is how we think of the middle class. The problem is the middle class existed before also in, in, in Roman in theoretical Rome, you have this idea of socialized monster truck shows. You have the Colosseum, you have wine and bread for free. And it's all coming from the expansion of the sea power. So, you could say that it's capitalism. It's probably not. It's probably the imperial value of expansion, expanding um, expansion, because the exploiting of these new places, for instance, Tunisia, uh, South Africa, you know, these they, they continually bring more and more wealth to a place. And if you have a populace that could riot, then you continually pacify them. So there, on one side, there's that. But you can maybe find someone who's older than me who lived in the 50s and ask them about the differences between the bell economy in the 50s and what it's like now. And they'll tell you it's very different because 
there are certain things that are the same. For instance, a lot of people are still aren't dying. A lot of people still have roofs over their heads, but their state owned roofs or their state controlled roofs. They're not as, they're not the same kind of roofs and movies are, have lost quality. There's more content, but there there's less quality. Yeah. And, and so everything is, everything is shifted to a subsidy, a subsidization, a subsidy of, of this, of the system so that people don't notice all that's lost all that they had that's gone. Well, yeah, you, you still got Disney plus, but your theater, remember what theaters were with gold yeah, statues man. of Babylonian goddesses with breasts and <laughs> theaters, yeah, not man. what they used to be for a nickel, you know? Yeah. Wow. It's kind of disheartening when you think about it that way, but at the same time, the way you were kind of describing how the, that kind of economy has the potential to work. It almost gives me a little bit more of a perspective on this like delicate balance, right? That maybe at least they assume or think that they're trying to uphold and they have it on their shoulders, maybe in some regard, maybe some perspectives. It almost felt, it almost felt like you were describing some sort of toroidal movement, you know, that just kind of worked and kept working and kept growing it. Like that's really interesting because I remember hearing Jim Chesner talking about a monetary system. I don't know if he was speaking directly. He wasn't sp- talking about like the Acer people from the very beginning or anything, but like at some point in ancient history, talking about how the king would hand out coins and they would have his face on it, but they would go uh, around and circulate as um currency literally keep things moving but then those coins for that year would be turned in at the end and new coins would be minted for the next year and the process would continue but no wealth would be garnered by individuals by uh you know personal intentional acquisition you know i mean it it, there's a there's a beautiful hope in that maybe right maybe but (laughs) but here's here a couple of things like one is they would have to pay out to people a lot because the government had debt. And so they would put their faces on coins. And that way you could expect that that money would circulate in that kingdom because otherwise it would get restamped by the next generation when they were restamping money. The big problem is before Archimedes, people would take their money and shake it in these bags for good luck. And then the powdered edges of the gold smashing each other would fall into the bag and you have a pile, uh, you know, gram of gold. Mm. So the money would start to lose off the edges. So our communities invented this thing where they have the run with the quarter. You have that, like those lines, the indentation, and that's how, you know, it's a full, uh, it hasn't been, none of the, the metal has been lost from the original coin. So a number of tricks of the trade that were you know, used in order to keep that money in circulation. But yeah, the, the main thing was that money in the kingdom was represented by the value of the, the sovereign and what sort of wealth the state was in charge of. So we also confused taxes with social services. At one point, social services were not from taxes. They were from, like we said, the elite going out and finding spoils of war and then compensating the locals with the, those spoils of war. Um, we did this in the sixties with McDonald's getting potatoes for cheaper in South America. It became very cheap to go to McDonald's because hamburger from Argentina and potato from Bolivia was, you know, it was a lot cheaper than getting it from Washington state. Uh, this sort of expansionism benefits the middle class up until there's no one else to rob. And that, that's kind of always been, 
you know, I mean, the, the left have talked about that for a mm. long time, but it's in a weird way um, important because that's why globalism exists in order to make sure that no one else has the capacity to get a cheaper product. You know, the problem with it is it ends up that no one's able to make anything after that point. There's no more competition. When was the last time you saw a competitive business? Uh, at this point, they've already brought the prices down on everything and the entropy is so low anyway that we're looking at what we, the next step is how do you continue to keep something functioning when the society starts to collapse? Do you need uh, a million new vehicles a year? No, but you probably still need some trucks every year or else the society will collapse. So we're, we're starting to see the minimalization of everything because of the collapse of the bubble economy. So we often talk about the elites or whatever we want to call them, the, the parasite class. You know, they research everything. They predict everything. They know what they're doing. There's everything is so thought out seemingly on every level of everything. You'd think that they would be able to turn the, the dial forward and see the future that you're talking about. And if, if, um, keeping the the society going in one way or another has kind of always been what they need to do even if they don't want to i don't know doesn't it seem like they're they're committing suicide as well like what what is happening in their future model uh, or is it just they're going to live forever because they're going to be cyborgs or something yeah i mean it's i think it's the level of psychopathy close to that okay actually. i mean so so many people know that the future is coming and they latch onto the future and they forget about living in the present. And mm -hmm. so there's all these books like be here now, this is be here now. Yeah. But then there's people that say nostalgically that the past was so great that we want to go back and we want to do things like they did in the past. Never mind that, you know, they beat women or that, you know, you could, <laughs> it was only good if you're one color, right. but that, like was, one out of 10 kids, not one out of like a hundred kids survived at one point. Yeah. yeah. Right. And how, and find survive because it's 30, 20. Right. So, so it was yeah, back to that perspective, man, doesn't care. People in India have nothing, right. We're a fine. It's yeah, sorry to interject, but yeah, no, but it's, it's that exactly. Ramdas thing, you know? So it makes me, but I mean, and I, I wouldn't really critique it so hard with you yeah. other than to say that I, I agree that uh, being here now might not always be the only thing that matters. I've seen some people be here now and miss tomorrow and not, uh, you know, and, 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 and sleep through yesterday and then miss tomorrow. So <laughs> being here now might not be the way to go all the time. Sometimes you have to be aware of the future and the past. So it seems like they're saying we don't want to lose what we have now. And every Western movie is always about you know, every futurist uh, sci-fi is a dystopia. Right. And it's important to Greek storytelling that there has to be a rising action and a, but the solution is never futurism in the futurist movie. I know. So, I don't understand how that's predictive programming to get us to like accept. I mean, well, it's not. I know that they use it's, it's to get us to get it. It's get, to get us to be afraid of the future. So we accept a reset, you know, it's, Okay, all right. That makes yeah. that that's interesting. Again, yeah. it goes back to those naturalists versus futurists, right? Yeah, and well, and, and where does Klaus come from? He comes from the north, where all these heathen, pagan traditions his, come from, right? I mean, I'm not trying to associate his it directly name, with that, but you should. His name Sawabi has to do with the god of Turan as well. Oh, how There's about a, that? 
there is some interesting connection between Tyrannism and, you know, Schwab mentioned Tartaria. I have to find someone asking me for the clip and I saw it. Yeah. A while I'd ago. love to see it too. Cause I've it, heard yeah. rumors, but that's ridiculous that it's that out in the open in the WEF. I, yeah. Well, I mean, it's always been accepted in Eastern Europe as a thing, you know, and they mm. talked in, in the, in that show, servant of the people, the Ukrainian show Zelensky, um, which is now the political party's name. They talk about we've dealt with the Tartars and the fascists, and like they, mm. they it comes up like all the time. Like so, so is sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Say yours. I was just thinking, like I, for a while, I was kind of suspicious around how Tartaria is coming out. I think I mentioned it on that roundtable that totally. it's like, well, were they a one-world government? And it's like, well, maybe not a one-world government or whatever. Maybe I'm framing it the wrong way, but. Are we witnessing the ultimate rollout of this old empire? And it's not what we're hoping it is. Yeah, I mean, so my the thing is he doesn't mention it in a positive light. So mm. that that okay, kind of okay. that that kind of helps. And All right. in general, the Tartars are looked at in uh, a more Eurocentric uh, with more Eurocentricity. Tartars are looked at as the the hordes with horseback. They're very closely associated with the, the Moorish Muslims mm. um, that uh, took over Spain. You know, you these statues in Leon of cutting off the heads of Tartars that were coming in from the east. So there's a lot of hate on the Tartars by the I, I don't I don't really. And this is also why they've said for so long that it wasn't an advanced civilization, but it was just sort of a, a group, you know, of, of campers that got together on the weekends and killed people, you know, and they didn't really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way Tartaria was described before it was described as Atlantis was they lived in, up to their knees in mud. They didn't have a light. They don't have lights in the tar. nighttime. Yeah. They lived in tar. <laughs> and we, we see this like over and over again, the Tartarians are described as the worst possible lowest people and morals and dogma. It says, well, the Tartars, they lost, you know, Albert Pike from the Freemasons says they lost their lands because they were inept is nepotism. They didn't deserve it. And so it's the worst possible story, but it's everyone's story. The people that say, hey, we built the pyramids. We understand how they built the pyramids. We're connected with the magic of electricity and science. And we know about Tartaria and they they lost it because they didn't deserve it. They didn't work hard enough. That so really interesting. So it's like a hubris. And yeah. that is the Atlantis story. That's okay. So here's the biggest, the biggest answer I think I've gotten to your question about is Tartaria evil or is it good? Yeah. You it know, I was just down. beating around that. Bush yeah. All the let's time. just, let's just go, <laughs> let's go straight to the thing is that Atlanticism and Tartarianism are up their opponents. And so this idea That's that, it. that Tartaria existed was believed by a number of people, despite the fact that they were told it wasn't true in the Rosicrucians in the Freemason period. And they continued to look into it while at the same time, Atlanticism is the belief that we are building Atlantis now. It's not so much that Atlantis existed in the past. It kind of is. It's in the vague memory, but it's not Tartaria, decidedly. They've decided to refer to it as the one world Tartaria, the one world Atlantis. And, oh, that, and it, so, you know, and this idea that Atlantis is what we're building now. New Atlantis is what Bacon calls it. Mm. Um, new Utopia is, is also associated with this idea of Atlantis. So I would say Atlanticism is actually the, the, the more true element of evil described by Schwab and describing the World Economic Forum and the Club of Rome. And even when you think about the differences between Carthage and Rome, right, 
Rome and Carthage were, you know, Rome had this seafaring empire that spread everywhere. Yeah. Carthage had to go north. So they, the land that Carthage controlled, land in the, sea. the Club of Rome, land sea. in the sea, man. <laughs> yeah, land in the sea. Just goes back it's like to a video- Jordan it's Maxwell, like a- God bless you. <laughs> it's like that civilization video game, you know, land in the sea. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Man, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about so many different items like this. Uh, that's how my brain works. I know it's how yours works too. So Dude, this is great. Yeah. I love doing shows with you. It's great to just jump around, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's all touching on, on similar, similar things, you know, it's all leading to the central focus always. Anyway, it's, that's just, we're uncovering more and more of what we used to maybe understand i don't know maybe we're going to understand more than any any generation ever has i don't know but i know that we're just trying to do this for for good so that's what i like and i appreciate you coming on man always and uh yeah let the people know if they don't already my god i don't know who doesn't but where can they find you andreas.me exertus.com and if your name is andrew or andreas or andy then you can join the council of andrews (laughs) hell yeah man All right, everybody, thank you again for joining me and Andreas. And uh, yeah, join us next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself, but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pacifaria. Enough, I get the point. You meddle with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>